Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host, Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years' history in dealing with eating disorders. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode you have learned something, or at least, if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. Hi, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? I'm Dina. And I'm Brian. In this episode, I was thinking about what should I talk to you guys about. Control was a big part of my, I guess, life and what I dealt with a lot or I tried to take control of during my eating disorder. I read something this morning and I wanted to share it with you because I thought it kind of summed it up. It says, control is an attempt to achieve mastery in one particular area of life in an otherwise chaotic existence. And I think I was living a chaotic existence. The reason I wanted that sense of control was because in my life, there was no control. Things were happening that I couldn't stop for existence. I'll give an example. My parents got divorced when I was about 13, 14 years old, and I knew it was coming. I don't know how I knew it was coming, but, you know, my dad was not around much when I was growing up. And for some reason, that week, he and my mom were talking out on the front steps of our house several times. And I knew something was going on. And I remember them coming in and telling me, like, Dina, we have something to tell you. And I said, don't tell me it's that you're getting a divorce. And they did. And it rocked my world. Um, And I blame my father for that. But that was a big, I think, blow to me early on. And I remember also being a very lonely child, being by myself quite often. I think I learned how to isolate very early on. But anyway. Don't just brush that aside because I want to point out to a lot of people that, you know, when we grew up, it was very common for kids to come home and, you know, they call them latchkey kids because you'd come from school, you'd have the key to the door, you'd open the door and you'd come home to an empty house. And you'd be in that empty house from the time school let out until the time your parent, well, parent or parents got home. And you're talking about two, three hours of you being by yourself in this great big house. And, you know, I was in elementary school and I think you were too. I mean, that's neglect. When you think about it today, nobody would ever do that today. Nobody would ever, I mean, for the most part, we have 16 and 17 year olds and we feel bad even leaving them home by themselves. Imagine an eight, nine, 10 year old home by themselves. So when I say it is neglect and neglect is abuse, I'm not being flippant in that assessment. That is the nature of abuse is being neglectful to your kids and and having them come home to an empty house while you can portray it as something that you believe in the kids and you trust them to act as an adult. But really to the kid, I mean, and I'll speak for myself, for a kid, it's very lonely. And I even had a brother, but it's lonely. You're home by yourself and all you have is television or maybe food to keep you company. So that even prior to your parents 
divorce, I think, is a significant way you felt out of control. Yeah, I mean, I always felt different from the rest of my family. But we can get into more of that kind of at some other point. But I mean... Well, and you were different. I think that just reinforces my point about being lonely is your brothers came home to somebody. Mm -hmm. They never came home to an empty house. They came home to... And when I say somebody, it's not themselves. They came home to an adult. So even that experience of, hey, my brothers came home to people, to a mom or a dad, I didn't just further sort of reinforces that feeling of isolation and I'm different and this doesn't make sense. And I'm not blaming my parents and I'm not blaming parents because I know moms. No, it's what they did. I mean, you can't judge today's standards by yesterday's standards. I'm a firm believer in that. But I don't think parents then thought about the impact of what they were doing. Yeah. And I, because both my parents had to work and I got it. And my mom was always, you know, I had a call when I got home from school and the neighbors knew I was home and, and all that. I'm just saying that when I was dealing with that, it was rough for me because my friends had sisters and brothers that they could hang out with and I didn't want to be alone. And so it kind of started some behaviors in me early on that I took on a lot of responsibility early on, like cleaning the house and doing the grocery shopping and a lot of things that I wish I could have just been a kid a little bit longer. But some of the things with my parents divorcing and then with my brother dying and that happening in the house that I grew up in, and then my mom getting in cancer, a lot of those things I didn't have any control over. But the one aspect I did was what I ate and what I didn't eat. And my view of my body and how I looked at it and took care of it. So we're not going to talk about the car accident? No, the car. I, <laughs> well, I mean, I just want to put this on a timeline. Came home to an empty house. Mm -hmm. Parents divorce. Then as a young person, 16, 17, 18, I don't know how old you were when your brother passed away, hmm. but that happened. And then it seemed like maybe two, three, four years after that yeah. car accident with brain injury. Yes. So, I mean, those are kind of the contributing factors of my life. And I'll just say from my perspective, the car accident to me really was like, okay, I'm changing my role from boyfriend to caregiver. And I think that's where it started for me in terms of a caregiver, because it was like, okay, there's certain things she can't do. There's certain things I'm going to have to help her with. And really at the time, for a long time, we didn't know what the outcome of your injury was going to be. So we didn't know how conversational you were going to be. If you could ever hold a conversation, could you even hold a job? I mean, those are all things that were kind of up in the air. So I think a lot of things from my perspective was I have to do things for you. That's what I have to do in order to take care of you. And I think to a certain extent that that was my role for somebody that was injured. But as you got better, I don't think a lot of people, maybe even myself, were willing to relinquish that role. And I think that contributed to your spiral of I am out of control I can't find comfort in anything. I need to find that somewhere. And I think the somewhere was in the food. Well, I think the car accident was definitely a time where, okay, and we started with, I was home a lot alone as a child growing up. Both my parents worked. And then all of a sudden, there's this accident. And they give me a 50-50% chance to live. Or if I do live, what am I going to come back at all like who they remember me being or not. 
And all of a sudden I have all this attention and it's all that I've ever wanted my whole life. My mom's there at, you know, my pretty beck and call, I'll say, but my brothers, my boyfriend, everybody's there giving me so much attention that I misconstrue it as love. And I mean, obviously it's love, but I'm looking at it as, okay, I get sick, I get attention. It was a terrible time. And I know this is kind of going off the topic a little bit, but I'm just going to mention it once. When I found out that Matthew Perry died, it really, really hit me hard because I know he was struggling and he seemed like he was getting to a really good place. And I started reading his book. What is it? Like Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And in the first couple pages, I just wanted to share a point because it's exactly how I felt at the time of that accident and everything going on, is that I'm surprised I'm not dead. And why did I survive that? And I asked myself that, like, sometimes recently, every once in a while, because I know for a fact that my mom was in the ambulance when I was being taken to the hospital, and I know a code blue was called twice, and she let me know that. And then to be someone with an eating disorder at 27 years old, at 56 pounds, my nieces and nephews weighed more than that, and they were seven and eight years old. You know, I really shouldn't be here, but I am, and I'm grateful for that, but I really, really shouldn't be. And I know, you know, even talking to your mom and remembering those days, nobody wanted to say it, but we were preparing for your funeral. We were preparing for this is going to happen and there's nothing we can do to stop it. I mean, yeah, it was, I feel bad every day that I put my family through what I did. Because anybody that looked at you knew that this isn't normal and this is a person that should be dead. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about control. Because now that you know a little bit more about my upbringing and me being by myself, control was a major factor. And it came down to who was controlling who. I thought I was taking on the control. I thought, now I'm in charge. Everybody else is doing their thing and I have no say in that. But I can tell Dino what to do. But that was totally wrong because the eating disorder was in control the whole time. And people will ask me, well, were you ever hungry? Of course I was hungry. I was hungry all the time. But the manipulation that would occur, and I guess we'll just say voices, I know that's going to sound kind of eerie, but there were like an angel and a devil on either side of my shoulder that if they knew I was hungry, you know, you're going to get fat. There was like this little person talking to me constantly telling me this is going to be happen if you eat this or you don't eat that. And it would change my whole outlook on everything. And that inner turmoil is what I point to when anybody wants to ask, how do you know you have an eating disorder? And my answer is typically the same. Here's my answer. And I'm no doctor. I'm no specialist. I'm just somebody who's dealt with this. But how do I know I have an eating disorder? What's the first thing you think of before you go to sleep? And what's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? If the answer to both of those are food, you've got an eating disorder. And to me, it's that simple because it's that all encompassing. When we talk about OCD, it's one thing, but obsessive compulsive disorder, 
it's even beyond obsessive. It's all encompassing. And the fear of letting go of that control are a bunch of what ifs. If I let go of it, what if I start to enjoy food? What if I can't stop eating? What if I have to buy bigger clothes? And I'm not talking, I was like a size zero then. So to me, I'm always going to be from the extreme, from zero to size 34, whatever it was. And if you're a size 34, that's no big deal. But for me, that's where my head and my mind went. There is a certain degree of, I can kind of see the logic in that. I mean, I've gone from one extreme, getting better is the other extreme. But that's what you have to struggle against in terms of getting somebody into treatment and getting somebody help is, is that mindset of there is no middle ground. It's one extreme or the other. And when you can't see that, that's important to recognize that that's the inner turmoil that we're talking about. And I think the out of control portion is the insistence of, and it's not intentional, but I do want to bring up that and again, not a doctor, but what I saw was the insistence that you're a child. I take everything away from you. You're dependent on me for, and when I say me, you, Dina, were dependent on your mother for food, shelter, mm -hmm. clothing, and add on the piece of you've suffered this injury and I'm going to take away certain things from you because I don't think you can do them. And that whole thing is the insistence of the relationship we have. I refuse to see you as an adult. And I don't think even though we were married, they didn't really acknowledge they we were a couple. I mean, I was dependent on your family for a job. I was dependent on income and in order to provide you with what you needed. And so I think all of that kind of contributes to the insistence that you're not an adult and you can't handle being adult or you can't, I don't even know what the psychology of it really is for the parent relationship, but you know, there certainly is a refusal to see you as an adult because that means something to me. So I'm going to keep insisting that you be that person that I define you as. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, when an eating disorder also takes over, it doesn't just take control of the food aspect in your life. It takes over your emotions and your decisions. And I got to a point where if I'm not feeding my body and my brain and everything else that's going on, I'm irrational. And so I remember that first week to 10 days in treatment at Monacatini was I couldn't speak or share or anything in any of the meetings during the day because I was a mess. I mean, I was angry and belligerent and crying all the time. So I just had to sit there and take it in and listen to it as I went on. But what I want to touch base on, and we'll get maybe in the next episode, we can talk about it a little bit more. But with the control of fear and losing control, it's almost like the first step of AA. And the first step is really surrendering and saying you're powerless over food, alcohol, drug, whatever the thing you're coping with or using as you're coping with. And the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, four of OA is the same. It says, we admitted we were powerless over, I'll say, food, and that our lives had become unmanageable. And mine definitely became unmanageable. It's so difficult, but it's such an important first step. Once you can say that first step, I think you're open to so many things. You're open to people helping you and reaching out to others. If you can admit it to yourself, 
then I think you can really get help. But we'll get more into the 12 steps. I don't know how many people have actually worked the 12 steps or not, but they're very powerful. But I do want to remind you guys that we do appreciate everyone that has listened to our podcast, and we do have a Patreon. I also have a group on Facebook. It's called Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? And just try to share encouraging things with everyone every day on that. Email eatthatfat at gmail.com. We appreciate you, and thank you for listening. It's amazing to look at the map and see where this podcast is gone, and we hope we can help so many people out there. If you have questions or you just want to shoot us an email, please do so, so we can help you and your family. And then if there's something you guys want us to discuss on this podcast, let us know. But we're going to end with the serenity prayer. God, God grant me the, the serenity, serenity to, to accept, accept the things, things I cannot change, change the, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. difference. Keep, Keep coming, coming back. back. It, it works, works when you work, work it, so work it. it. You're, You're worth it. it. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful or we have given you hope and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eatthatfat at gmail.com. That's eatthatfat at gmail.com. Our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on. We will not pay ourselves but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders. Please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk. You are not alone and there are people who care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it. You are worth it. <laughs>